Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. She's not responding. She's not responding? No. Okay. Is she breathing? Oh, no. She got a pulse, though. Please hurry. Please hurry, please. You just heard a sample of a frantic 911 call from a man inside a Daytona Beach Shores hotel. He had discovered a woman clinging to life inside a room on the fourth floor. Paramedics could not save her. Police said the murder victim had an open, out-of-county warrant for a charge of human trafficking. You will hear more about that case, and we'll also take a look back at a quadruple murder committed 10 years ago yesterday on the high seas between Miami and Cuba. All that and more coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the slaying of a 34-year-old woman who was found dead inside a room at the Hawaiian Inn on State Road A1A. Local authorities have disclosed very little about the investigation, but confirmed to the Daytona Beach News Journal that the woman was from the Orlando area and had an active warrant for human trafficking at the time of her death. Then, in our Only in Florida segment, I'll talk to you about a dust-up in DeLand in which one senior citizen used a machete to slash another senior citizen's face during an argument in a bank parking lot. And finally, in our Looking Back segment, we'll discuss the hijacking of a charter boat that was headed from Miami to the island of Bimini, only to be taken over by two gunmen who were hell-bent on taking the 47-foot vessel to Cuba. Four people were killed, and the hijackers got stuck at sea. My guest for that segment will be true crime author Carol Cope. I'll discuss the Daytona Beach Shores homicide after the break. The Volusia County Sheriff's Office Communications Center got flooded with calls shortly before 5.30 a.m. Friday from a beachside hotel on A1A. A 34-year-old woman was barely alive when a man from inside the same room called the front desk clerk, beckoning him to call police. The man was also running down the hall screaming, which prompted more 911 calls. At first, the front desk clerk didn't seem to fully grasp the gravity of the situation. It's probably medical. It's not fire. And I don't think it's police. I think it's medical. Okay. It wasn't just someone having a cardiac arrest. It was someone having a cardiac arrest that was the result of a violent attack, possibly a stabbing. Before long, the man who called the clerk made his way to the front lobby. He he sounded very upset and excited. Okay. 
So they sounded like in distress, would you say? Yes, they, yes. Okay. In fact, I hear yelling now. He, they, they, he, he, he may be, I, I hear somebody shouting. He may be. Uh, yes, uh, here, I have 991 on the phone. Please, please help me, please. Please help me, please. Listen, listen to me, listen to me. Stop yelling, stop yelling. I have help on the way. What is going on? She's not responding. She's not responding? No. Okay. Is she breathing? Oh, uh, no. She got a pulse, though. Please hurry. Please hurry, please. Sir, sir, listen to me. Calm down, okay? You yelling and screaming is not helping anything, okay? We have help on the way, okay? Okay. Can you go back to your room and give the... Again, you're going to pick up the phone because it's going to ring, all right? Yeah. Go back, go back to your room. The clerk tried connecting the call to the room but the hysterical man never put the phone back on the hook. A couple minutes later, first responders arrived, but they were unable to resuscitate the victim, who on Saturday was identified as Olympia Cerruti. 36 hours after the killing, police still had not arrested a suspect. The man on the 911 call was interviewed by detectives. His relationship to the victim was not disclosed to the media. Saruti had driven a rental pickup truck to the hotel, which was parked in the south parking lot and cordoned off with police tape. Daytona Beach Shores is a beachside community, comprised mostly of sky-rise condominiums. Most of the residents are retirees. Its population is about 4,300 residents. The city is wedged between the Atlantic Ocean and the Halifax River and it borders the southeast portion of Daytona Beach. The last homicide to occur there was at a hotel just 200 yards south of the Hawaiian Inn. It happened 11 months earlier, and it involved a transaction between a prostitute and a john that went awry and resulted in a robbery and a fatal stabbing. After Friday's stabbing, the sounds of a screaming man in the hallway frightened a number of people staying in the hotel. 911, where is your emergency? At the Hawaiian Inn on A1A. What's going on at that location? There's a man running around the hallway screaming, please help me, please help me, at the top of his lungs. Okay, hold on. All right. Just, okay, so that's all you heard him saying was, please help me? Yes, bloody murder, running up and down the hallway, screaming it over and over and over, screaming. All right. Um, did you have a description of him? Did you see him or did you just no, hear him? No, we did not want to open our door. A law enforcement spokesman told me it was too early to say whether Friday's killing was in any way related to the human trafficking allegations made against the victim. Coming up, an argument between two senior citizens ends with one of them having a bloody face. A man suffered a slash wound across his face Monday morning during an argument with another elderly man outside a Bank of America in DeLand. The argument started, police said, after 70-year-old Arlen Hubbard drove too close to the victim, 68-year-old George Dominguez, outside the bank building at 230 North Woodland Boulevard. Dominguez thought Hubbard had nearly hit him. So he waited for Hubbard to park and then banged on his window. 
The two men started yelling at each other after Hubbard got out of the vehicle. Afterward, they started shoving. Hubbard then grabbed a machete out of his car and slashed Dominguez in the face. 911, where is your emergency? Um, I'm at the Bank of America on North Woodland Boulevard in Deland. I'm in the parking lot out back. There is a gentleman with a machete that just sliced another gentleman in the face. Now he's helping him. He's giving him napkins and stuff. But this guy's got his face flashed by this other guy. The caller, as you just heard, pointed out that Hubbard, perhaps feeling guilty about what he had done, gave the victim napkins for his wound. Both men waited at the scene for police. Dominguez was transported to Halifax Health Medical Center in Daytona Beach to be treated for his cut. Hubbard was charged with aggravated battery with a deadly weapon and was booked at the Volusia County Branch Jail, where he was released later that same day after posting $5,000 bail. Coming up, the frightening tale of the infamous ghost ship that was splattered with blood and left stranded at sea between Miami and Cuba. Kelly Van Lahr was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She had a modest upbringing, but she liked to dream big about the possibilities of the world beyond the Midwest. Like a lot of people who grew up in the 80s, she was captivated by a long-running TV show on NBC, one that featured a lot of pastels, Italian cars, and fast boats. Miami Vice showed the glitz and glamour of the Magic City. Kelly wanted that for herself. She wanted the warm weather, the beaches, and the wealth that that bustling coastal city had to offer. After Kelly finished community college and after her mother had moved to St. Louis, Kelly remained in Kalamazoo and began dating a man in the late 1990s. When that relationship deteriorated, an emotionally destitute Kelly decided to finally chase her dream and move to Miami, where a friend had already settled. Kelly got a job as a bartender in the Miami area. Every day during her commute to and from work, she would marvel at Star Island, a man-made island in Biscayne Bay that consisted of huge houses. Shaquille O'Neal, Gloria Stefan, and Rosie O'Donnell are among some of the rich and famous who have lived there. There was one house in particular, a White House, that stood out to passers-by. Kelly surely noticed it. She even told those close to her that she would one day live in that mansion. She also told them that one day she'd like to marry a boat captain. One day at the bar where she worked, she met Jake Branham. Not only was Jake a boat captain, but his family owned the White Mansion on Star Island, and he lived there. Kelly and Jake fell hard for one another. Kelly got pregnant, the two got married, and had another child. Kelly lived in the house on Star Island with her husband, but her life wasn't exactly what she had envisioned for herself. Her husband co-owned a fledgling charter boat business, so he was working constantly and often way out at sea. 
His grandmother, who ran the Branham family compound, had no use for Kelly. According to some, she had no use for any of the women who settled with the men in her family. That meant Kelly found herself at the house, in the living quarters above the garage, isolated from the family that didn't accept her, and she was forced to care for her children by herself. Here is Branham family friend Maria Gagliardo during an interview that aired on Investigation Discovery, describing Kelly's life on Star Island. Kelly would tell me she was never accepted, she was never invited into the family gatherings, and she was lonely all the time because Jake was always out fishing. Meanwhile, the young man in neighboring Hialeah had big dreams of his own, but he had conflicted dreams. Guillermo Zarabozo was part of a young police cadet group and was attracted to the life of the paramilitary. He liked guns. He liked law and order. It was easy to see him one day wearing a uniform and a badge. Here is Zarabozo's attorney, William Matthewman, telling investigative discovery about the life that was within his client's reach. He was a citizen, and he wanted to make something out of his life. He really liked the whole law enforcement, military side of things. That wasn't the path he wound up taking. Zarabozo spent a lot of time with his high school friends at a local chop shop, a place where stolen cars were brought and dismantled so that parts could be sold on the black market. It was there that he met Kirby Archer, a man who deceived Zarabozo into thinking he was an undercover CIA agent. Archer, who was 35 at the time, always wore nice clothes. He always wore sunglasses, even indoors. He carried a briefcase. Almost immediately, Zarabozo was under Archer's spell. Before long, Archer, who liked Zarabozo, was Cuban-born, convinced the 18-year-old to join him in a covert operation, one that would get messy, but would end with a triumphant voyage back to their homeland. South Florida attorney and true crime author Carol Cope, who wrote Murder on the High Seas, which was about the pair's fateful voyage, told me that Archer and Zarabozo routinely deluded themselves. They thought of themselves as kind of James Bond, you know, heroes, spies for hire, and they thought that if they could get a boat and and get it, drive it to Cuba, that they would be welcomed with open arms and they would be big heroes. That would not have been the case, even if they had been successful, but they were not successful at all. Archer was on the run. He was in Miami, hidden from authorities in Strawberry, Arkansas, where he was facing charges of grand theft and child sex abuse. The local detectives were beginning to close in on him because he was suspected of child abuse, child sexual abuse crimes. And the local detectives had pretty good evidence against him, and they kept setting up uh, appointments with him for interviews, and he would break the appointment at the last minute. Finally, the detectives got sick of that. 
that. And as they got the closer to having an actual sit-down interview with him, he made plans to leave the area. What he did was one night he took the cash box that he kept as uh, as the customer service manager of, of the Walmart, and he hid it in a uh, a microwave oven and checked out of the checked out of the store with it. So at that point he went on the run. Archer, with his one hundred thousand dollars, drove a borrowed pickup out of town, knowing the vehicle would be reported stolen and knowing he would be arrested he paid cab fare taking taxis from town to town from arkansas to south florida in 2007 there was no airfare to cuba even if there was archer with his fugitive status wasn't getting on a plane the original plan for archer and zaraposo was to steal a boat they actually boarded one in a miami area marina with the intent of taking it. But after one look at all the levers, buttons, and displays, they gave up on that strategy. Neither knew how to start a boat, let alone drive one. That absence of a nautical skill set would impede their success again later. In the meantime, the pair was still determined to get to Cuba. They decided to pay cash to a charter captain and take them to Bimini, an island in the Bahamas. Only every time they pitched their offer to a charter captain, they were rebuffed. Every captain knew that a flight from Miami to Bimini was only about 30 minutes and less than $100. Why would anyone pay four times that for a five-hour boat trip to Bimini? It could only mean the customers were criminals. Archer and Zaraboso needed to invent a story, and eventually they did. They came up with the story that they would be meeting girlfriends in the Bahamas and that the girlfriends were already there waiting for them in Bimini and that the girlfriends had packed up the, their own passports by mistake. That is the passports of Archer and Zaraboso. So without passports, they wouldn't be able to get on the plane. So therefore, they were forced to charter a boat to take them over. And that was... It only took one captain to convince. And as Cope explained, it wound up being Jake Branham who skippered the Joe Cool, a 47-foot vessel. The reason that they fell for it was they were young, they were inexperienced, they were just getting their charter company started, and they very much wanted to have an international charter um, so that they could say they had the experience and they knew what they were doing. In Matthewman's mind, it was easy to see why Jake and his crew agreed to the deal. He agreed that he would pay $4,000. And in return for that, they were taking him across to Bimini. You know, $4,000 to make that short trip to Bimini and back is good money. Then it was cash. Originally, the plan was for Jake and his crew, half-brother Scott Gamble and his first mate Samuel Carey, to take the two strangers on the Joe Cool to Bimini, drop them off, and then head back. But by this time, Kelly was at her wit's end about her husband being away for long periods, so she decided at the last minute to accompany Jake to Bimini. 
she found a sitter for the couple's two children, and she joined her husband at the marina. Jake and the others were astonished to see her there. Kelly liked looking at the ocean, but from the safety of land. She liked looking at boats, but was frightened to be on them, especially in the middle of an ocean. She had a deep-seated phobia of the open water. But Kelly was a woman desperate to keep her marriage together, and she thought this boat trip would help with that. Family patriarch Harry Branham explained to Investigation Discovery how difficult it was for Kelly to get on that boat. She did not like to see. She didn't like to be out there where she couldn't see land. I think she went on the trip just to be with Jake. Jake had doubts before the trip. The deal was actually made between the two strangers and one of his crew members. Jake agreed to it, but he did so over the phone. When Archer and Zarabozo showed up at the marina, they brought with them a lot of luggage, and something was gnawing at Jake. He thought something was off about the two men. Nonetheless, he let them on board. He didn't check their IDs. He didn't go through their bags. Jake's uncle, who stayed behind, took the pair's money, and the trip was a go. Jake had a short phone conversation with Maria, who was watching the kids that day. She sensed apprehension, and she told Investigative Discovery that she even tried to convince Jake to call it off. Called me just before he was getting ready to leave the dock and to see how the kids were and to ask me what kind of fish I wanted him to bring back. I said, Jake, I don't really know what was going on. Tell me about the trip. I said, Jake, something is definitely wrong. You need to explore this a little more and don't leave until you know what's going on. He said, I can't. They're already on board. Jeff already took the money. I have to make the trip. To this day, according to Cope, Maria wishes she had tried harder to convince Jake to cancel. As the six people were at sea, everything mostly seemed fine. Then the boat got close to Bimini, and Archer called Zarabozo to the cabin. Jake and Kelly remained on the flybridge. Carrie was on the deck, and Gamble was on the flybridge with the captain and Kelly. Archer gave his orders to the 19-year-old Zarabozo, who still believed he was trying out for the CIA. He was to take out the one crew member on the deck. Archer grabbed his pistol, stuck it under his belt, covered it with his shirt, and went up to the sky bridge. Afterward, Gamble went downstairs, which made Archer nervous. Now his accomplice had to handle two men instead of one. A gunshot could be heard below. The bullet struck Gamble. Before Jake knew what was happening, Archer pulled out his gun and fired a fatal shot into his head. Jake fell onto the deck below. Kelly, who stood frozen in fear, was shot in the face. She, too, fell to the deck below and lay next to her husband. Both were dead. Archer heard at least one more gunshot from below. Zarabozo killed Carrie in the cabin. In a matter of seconds, the number of live bodies on board Joe Cool went from six to two. Archer and Zarabozo were far clumsier carrying out the rest of their mission. 
As Cope explains, Zaraposa wasn't thorough enough with his job, and Archer didn't take into account the technology on the boat. There was blood everywhere. There was a lot of blood spatter. Um, the two men worked together to throw the bodies overboard, but there was there was a lot of blood. Archer told Zaraposa to clean up the blood with a hose that was on the boat, and, but Zaraposa didn't do a very good job. So um, there was still unknown to Archer. There were still some blood specks around the boat that showed where the people had been killed, where the crew had been killed, down on the deck and also inside the cabin. The second thing that happened that they were unaware of, there was a GPS running on the boat the whole time, and the GPS was still recording the track of the boat. The GPS recorded the track of the boat from Miami Beach to Bimini in a straight line because during all that time, only the captain of the boat was driving. He's very skilled. He plotted the course, and it was like drawing a straight line on a map. But when he was killed, when Archer shot him and he fell below, no one was steering the boat for a crucial period of time, like 90 seconds. The, the boat track was very, very erratic. It was practically going in circles. Archer's cluelessness on how to drive a boat came into play again. He struggled figuring out which direction was south. He used a compass he had bought at a store, even though there was a perfectly good compass on the boat, and still managed to steer the boat in a zigzagging pattern. When he finally did find his bearings, he headed south in the middle of the Gulf Stream, which flows north. Essentially, Archer was driving upstream and burned precious gasoline. Only one of the tanks was filled. The second had been emptied. Assuming they were only going to Bimini and back, and not Cuba, Jake went on the trip with only one tank of fuel. Eventually, that tank ran dry. In another instance of bad decision-making, Archer and Zarabozo decided to get on the life raft instead of staying on the larger, more stable vessel. They felt they could paddle to land, and even had hoped to paddle to Cuba. They wound up stranded in Quesal Bank, the westernmost Bahama Bank, which is actually closer to Cuba than any Bahamian island. Even still, they were about 30 miles from Cuba and had no chance of making it there. The following day, on September 24, 2007, Jake's uncle called the U.S. Coast Guard. Jake and Kelly were due back around noon. By 4 p.m., the family was convinced something was wrong. Later that day, a Coast Guard cutter came upon the Joe Cool. At that time, Coast Guardsmen didn't know it was the missing boat out of Miami. They just knew it was empty. It looked like it was being driven by a ghost. In fact, early media stories about the vessel referred to it as the ghost ship. As Cope explains, it was after sundown when the Coast Guard boarded it, and things didn't feel safe. They were spooked. They didn't know whether someone was on the boat. They didn't know, you know, what happened. Um, they quickly determined that the boat uh, was unoccupied, and they noticed the blood spatter on the boat. That put them on high alert. They knew then that something bad had happened on that boat. 
Word got around quickly that the boat found in Casal Bank was the same vessel reported missing in Miami. So a helicopter search was quickly underway to search for survivors. Archer and Zarabozo weren't far, and they were rescued. They did not show much gratitude. The Coast Guardsmen testified at trial that they were immediately suspicious because if if um, these people had been rescued from a, a disaster at sea uh, in which they feared for their lives, they would have been very happy to be on the Coast Guard helicopter. They had rescued, these Coast Guardsmen had rescued many people who got into trouble on the water, and they were always thrilled to be rescued by the Coast Guard, thanking them. Oh, you saved my life. Thank you so much. You know, and how did you find this? And, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. Whereas Archer and Zarabosa were sullen, quiet, secretive. Archer and Zarabozo came up with a story while on the raft in the event they'd be rescued. However, they didn't spend a lot of time on the details. Archer's story conflicted with Zarabozo's and vice versa. Federal investigators surmised right away they weren't telling the truth. Their story was that they were attacked by pirates, and they were the only survivors. Here is Assistant U.S. Attorney Karen Gilbert, who prosecuted the men, talking to Investigative Discovery about why there was so much skepticism. It was pretty far-fetched to believe that there were pirates in the Atlantic Ocean between Miami and Bimini. And it just wasn't stacking up. Both men were charged with multiple counts of first-degree murder. Archer pleaded guilty to avoid a possible death sentence and received five consecutive life terms. Zarabosa was tried twice after jurors at his first trial could not reach a unanimous verdict on his murder counts. He was retried and convicted. He, too, is serving five life sentences. Zarabozo and Archer will never again hurt an innocent victim. There's no possibility of parole in the federal system. They will only come out in a box. Jake and Kelly's children were orphaned. After a lengthy and bitter custody dispute among Kelly's mother, Kelly's half-sister, and the Branham family, the judge awarded custody to the half-sister. She is raising them in the Pacific Northwest. Cope stated in her book that other family members have had no contact with the children. Cope, who, like Kelly, grew up in Kalamazoo, was interested in the story about the ghost ship from the moment she read about it in the news. Her interest kept growing the more she learned about it, and she eventually committed to writing a book. An experienced boater herself, she knows the vastness of the ocean and the dangers associated with it. She also understands Kelly's deep-rooted desire to move to Miami and start anew with the expectation of a better life. Through all of Kelly's viewings of Miami Vice, she was never intimidated by any of the violence depicted in it. Danger is real in Miami, and anyone can come face-to-face with it at any time, according to Cope, who called the Joe Cool story a prime Miami tragedy. First, the abandoned boat 
um, and then finding out who the people were who were on the boat, what happened. Um, to me, it was just everything I always thought about Miami when I was living in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I wanted to move to Miami and be in the sunshine and be on the beach and the warm water. Um, there is a, a very dark, ugly side to all of that. The underbelly of all of that uh, is, is dangerous and in this case turned out to be fatal. The family patriarch, Harry Branham, misses the family he lost 10 years ago, and he resents how the slings devastated those who were left behind. Here, he conveys how the bad dream keeps circulating in his head. Sometimes it's just like a nightmare that you wake up from, but you never do. It just should have happened. There's so many reasons why it should have happened. Just not right. But it happened. You can't roll it back. You can't undo it. You gotta live with it. Thank you for listening. Cope's book, Murder on the High Seas, is available for purchase through Amazon. Next week, we'll discuss the cold case of Jimmy Norris, a San Francisco area man who 43 years ago visited Florida for reasons he kept from his family and was killed in a remote area of Dixie County near the Gulf of Mexico. His remains were found in 1976, but they were not matched to Norris until 2011. The case has remained unsolved, but authorities have promised to close the case with an arrest. My guest next week will include Florida Department of Law Enforcement Special Agent Mike Kennedy and Citrus County Chronicle reporter Buster Thompson, as well as Norris's sister, Rosemary Southward. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.